This man on the screen now, his name is George Eastman. He's a photography pioneer and he's the founder of an iconic uh, photography company called Kodak or Eastman Kodak as it was later known. In 1884, uh, Eastman uh, patented the first practical roll film. Who remembers rolls of film? Yep, yep, this side of the room again. Oh, goodness. Always, always. Uh, In 1888, he perfected the Kodak Black camera, the first camera he designed, um, and Eastman was a progressive for his era. And famously, he's quoted in photography circles as saying, Light makes photography. Embrace light, admire it, love it, but above all, know light. Know it for all you are worth, and you will know the key to photography. You see, light transforms, light exposes the image onto the film, or nowadays it's mostly a digital back. Light makes the image, and exposing film to light creates a sense of change, a transformation from from black to an image that we have. You see, the moment we become a Christian is kind of like a photographic change moment. It's a, a radical change from darkness to light, from nothing on the film to vibrant colour, vibrant exposure. You see, taking a picture happens in an instant, or so we think, but the truth is it does take time. And sometimes it's just a fraction of a second, just like, and other times it's minutes or even hours. Uh, It's different for each image, but the main characteristic is the change. The change is the beginning point is so radically different from the end point, the exposed image. This is an image of a dancer taken by me um, for the Australian Professional Photography Awards in 2011. The image won me a silver in the open portrait category. And while the raw image took just you know, one two hundredth of a second, a mere fraction, it took hours before and after. I had to position a light here, move a light here. I was you know, planning things, getting our backdrops right, getting the lighting, bringing in props and things. I had the uh, dancer jumping on a small trampoline to get the height. Uh, and we had all sorts of things going on. So rather than just this one split-second capture, it was so much more. Afterwards, I'm digitally manipulating the light, dodging and burning for those that are into photography and Photoshop like I am. It took more than just that split second to create the image ready for judging. And this is what God does too. He gives us moments, intersections of our life, experiences, people in our lives, and his word to show us who he is, to illuminate our darkness or blindness to him, and he does this by his Holy Spirit working in us. Last week we heard how God had intersected the life of the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip explaining the gospel to him, and then God was aligning another intersection in his life. This time it was Philip to come and speak to him. And I'm just thinking, how many intersections were there in my life before I came to know and trust Jesus. Maybe for you it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's even 103. The point is that God is sovereign and he has a plan and his plan will not fail. His plan has you here today. Think about that. 
Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Um, maybe you're here this morning and it's just another intersection in your life. Just checking out the claims of Jesus. Is this you? I want you to hear this morning the account of Saul's conversion and it should bring comfort to you. Saul is the worst of the worst. You can't get any, any worse than Saul. And Jesus intersected his life and Saul has changed. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done today, forgiveness is available in Jesus. My life has seen a number of intersections finally resulting in, in my conversion to being a follower of Jesus. God's grace like light transforming that strip of film was relentless until I was exposed to just the right amount that made me decide to follow Jesus. My print had been exposed. Light had exposed the darkness. As a child, I grew up in a, a Christian home, went to a public school, then a Christian school, two committed Christian parents, a, a sister much older than me that loves Jesus as well. You could say I'm in a pretty privileged position. It doesn't all happen like that for everyone. And perhaps you've, you've had the same or perhaps not. In my life, I've never known a day, uh, just like Julia really, that I didn't believe in God. But it didn't mean I was saved by God. After all, even the devil believes in God. As I got older, I began to understand what faith in Jesus really means. And I'd always believed in God, but it was a process. Not of trying to work out if God existed, because I'd already believed he existed, but of putting the pieces together to work out who this Jesus guy really is. To understand the depth of my sin and why I needed saving from it. I needed to understand the life of Jesus as sinless. Unlike mine and his death, the death I deserved to die. And I was brought to my knees. To understand through Jesus' death he forgave my sin. And it didn't matter what I'd done. You see, there's a, there's a real cost to sin and it devastates relationships, but especially it separates us from, from Jesus, from God. And so the ultimate cost is eternal separation from Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus paid the price for my sin. He took the punishment I deserved and he took the punishment you deserve too if you believe in him. As we've uh, moved through the book of Acts, we've seen changes in focal length. There's going to be a lot of photography puns here, I'm sorry. We've zoomed in and we've zoomed out. We've seen the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. We've seen a really wide-angle lens of the whole Christian church and we've seen close-up portraits, intimate details of people, conversion experiences even. Just like our photographs, when we zoomed in and we use a wide aperture, the background of the, of the image compresses and our subject pops and stands out. This is what we see here. We zoom in for a moment and we see the conversion of Saul, a snapshot of his conversion, a radical change. We're going to see a change from a chief persecutor to the chief defender of the Christian church. A guy who becomes a mobilized missionary, a bloke who ended up writing most of the New Testament. As we examine the 
composition of the story. We'll see three sections to the text. This is Saul's, this, this first uh, part is Saul's encounter with Jesus, whereby he is confronted and has his big aha moment. You know those ones when you, you finally click, something comes together, the piece fits in place and you finally understand for the first time. Saul's experience on the road to Damascus is the most famous conversion story of all, as I'm sure many of you would know, and it's, it's an account of Saul's big aha moment that sees his life changed. The story is composed in three parts. First, Saul has an encounter with Jesus, his big aha moment, and then Ananias encounters Jesus too. And in the final part of this amazing story, we see the result of the encounter with Jesus, a life totally changed, totally transformed by God's relentless grace. And ultimately, we see that it is Jesus who triumphs over the rage of his persecutor Saul in the unexpected conversion of Saul. So who is Saul? What is he like before he encounters Jesus? Luke mentions him three times and each time he's none too complimentary. He's an opponent of the way we find out. Followers of Jesus were referred to as followers of the way back then. Jesus called himself the way, didn't he? In John. Nowadays, we use the term Christian. But Saul is a bitter opponent. At Stephen Stoning, Luke tells us in chapter 7, verse 58, that the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a man named Saul. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we see Saul is giving approval to the death of Stephen. And in 8.3, Saul begins or began to destroy the church, destroy the church. He was making a house-by-house search for the followers of the way, the Christians dragging men and women off to prison. It is Saul's giving approval to Stephen's martyrdom, and it is Saul who is destroying the church. Saul could see his new way, and the old way could not coexist. If being right with God is by grace through faith, then it was no longer by works of obedience, and To protect the old way, Saul wanted to destroy the new way, but God intervened. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Luke resumes Saul's story, saying Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. You see, Saul hadn't changed since Stephen's death. In fact, he'd probably only ramped up his hatred towards Christians, towards followers of Jesus, and even become more hostile Saul is a Jew. He's born in the Roman city of Tarsus and he's very proud of his heritage, so zealous and devout, in fact. But Saul thinks that persecuting Christians is the natural way for him to show his devotion. He thinks that he's on God's mission. And so on mission is Saul that he even has letters of authority from the high priest in Jerusalem to take with him Damascus. He's got arrest warrants for any followers of Jesus, regardless of whether they are male or female. Saul is seeking to crush Christianity so completely before it reaches beyond Damascus and into other parts of the world. He thinks his actions are defending God's honour. He thinks he can contain Christianity and protect the old way. So next in the story, we see Saul travelling to Damascus, and it's a, um, a journey of, uh, depending on 
which commentator you read, 150 miles, 240 k's. I like to think of it as four to six days walk, probably not for me, probably take me 12. But think, you know, uh, from here to Wagga, there's a few people from Wagga like myself, uh, or from here to the coast, and you're walking. But suddenly a light from heaven flashes around, and just like the most, the brightest, the most powerful flashbulb, bang, it knocks him to the ground. And a voice speaks, and Saul is addressed by name. It says, you'll see it in the passage there, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which Saul replies, who are you, Lord? This repetition closely parallels Moses' experience in Exodus 3, where the bush burns and a voice addresses Moses. And as with Saul, his name is repeated solemnly. We've also seen Jesus do this too. Uh, in Luke, we see in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, we see Simon, Simon, and uh, in Luke thirteen, we see O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and in Mark fifteen, we have My God, My God. It's kind of uh, a technique. I think my mother might have even said it to me once or twice when I wasn't doing what I was meant to be doing. It's this crying out, getting the attention. This voice then identifies as Jesus. In verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting and then gives instruction, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the voice could have responded, I'm God, and Saul might have felt vindicated for what he was doing, but it didn't. The voice instead identifies as Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is Jesus identifying with his church. When you are persecuted because of your faith, it is Jesus who is persecuted. It is Jesus who takes it personally too. Saul realises in an instant it's the big aha moment. The camera shutter has clicked. The film has been exposed. Jesus is who he says he is. It's confirmed. Jesus is the crucified, the risen, ascended one. Jesus lives. And those who are followers of the way are, in actual fact, the true people of God. This is Jesus, the one who is commanding his mission. We read in Acts 1, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission. Jesus is commanding. It's a mission of salvation. Saul is temporarily blinded for three days and He's led by the hand into Damascus to await further instructions because Jesus is not done with him yet. Meanwhile, we meet Ananias, a disciple, a follower of the way from Damascus. He's heard of Saul and knows what he plans to do. It seems word travelled rather quickly for obvious reasons and Saul and Ananias knows that Saul is just there to wreak havoc. He's coming to cause trouble. So we meet Ananias when he has a vision and he's told by Jesus to go. It's quite a direct command. It's go, very specifically, in verse 11, to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, uh, Saul, later Paul. For he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Needless to say, Ananias is a bit reluctant, saying to Jesus, I've heard many reports about how bad this man is, how much harm he has caused to the followers of Jesus, and how he has been given authority to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord says to Ananias in verse 15, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Verse 16 goes on, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, Paul writes later in Philippians 1 that he eagerly expected and that he hoped that he would in no way be ashamed of the gospel, but he would have sufficient courage so that Christ would be exalted in his body. And at the end of that, he says, whether by life or by death. The change that you're witnessing or that we're witnessing here is so incredible that it it could only be made possible by Jesus. Saul is willing to die for Jesus. And if you've read the rest of the New Testament, you'll agree that Paul is really just shown how much he really must suffer. Ananias heeds the call for Jesus and trusts and obeys God in going to the house of Judas on Straight Street as Jesus instructed. And so now Paul and Ananias have had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. The flashlights popped. Saul fell down and his big aha moment, I realize now who Jesus is. He's putting it together. And now Ananias encounters Jesus and even though concerned with Jesus' plan, he chooses to trust Jesus. We're right at the climax here. The shutter button's been pressed. The the mirror inside the camera is flicked up. Light's travelling through our lens and onto that film and the light is flooding into the darkness. We continue the story at verse 17 with Ananias goes to the house places both hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul is identified as a brother, a follower of Jesus, a brother in Christ, one of their own. Brought together by the same blood, the blood spilled by Jesus on the cross. You see, Saul and Ananias are on the same page now. They both believe Jesus is the Lord. Jesus rose again from the grave and Jesus ascended into heaven and is commanding his mission. They are both now in the light, exposed, vibrant. Remarkably, what seems like scales falls from Saul's eyes and he can see again. The Holy Spirit has received and enables Saul to start afresh, to choose a new path, a new trajectory, if you like, for his life. In verse 18, immediately the scales fell from his eyes. He could see. He was baptized and after some food regained his strength. We're told in verse 20, Saul stays several days with other followers of Jesus in Damascus and at once began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It is Jesus has triumphed over the rage of his persecutor Saul in this unexpected conversion. 
So what's next for Saul? The apostle to the Gentiles. Saul has been called out of spiritual darkness. He's been welcomed into the light and now he's trusting Jesus who bled and died for him and sought him out, rising again and clothing us in his righteousness. After exposure to the light and what is this new trajectory for Saul, Saul goes on later to use his Roman name Paul and the New Testament records him taking three missionary trips, spreading the message of Jesus beyond the fringe to Asia Minor and Europe. And Paul is a well-educated man, especially in Jewish tradition, and holds a unique position to reach out to those Gentiles. He reflects of himself in Philippians 3.5, which I'll put on the screen for us. He was circumcised when eight days old, a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. He's a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and as for righteousness I obeyed the law without fault. So he realises that even as good as his heritage was, as devout, as committed, as much as like our friend George Eastman that we met earlier. He thought he had embraced light, admired light, loved light. He was still in the darkness, though, until Jesus came along and met him on the road to Damascus and illuminated his world with the most powerful flash you could ever imagine. Paul, uh, later in, uh, is the author of Romans and explains in Romans 8, uh, 3 to 4, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. As we've uh, worked our way through Acts, this true story, the conversion of Saul and others like the healing of the beggar at the gate, the conversion of the Ethiopian treasurer that we saw recently, last, last week I think it was, the resurrection of Jesus, they're all evidence, proof that this gospel is not just pie in the sky, this gospel is real. As we've worked our way through Acts, we've seen Jesus ascend, we've seen the Holy Spirit come down, and the gospel go out. It's Jesus who is alive and active and he's directing the mission of his church, this church even. So what can we learn about conversion from this uh, passage? Firstly, Saul's conversion and our conversion is unexpected. It was Jesus who showed himself to Saul Jesus who sought out Saul, not Saul seeking Jesus. Remember websites in the uh, late 90s and the early 2000s and probably even some today. I think I found one last night when I didn't think people were still doing this. But At the foot of the page, they'd have powered by Microsoft or powered by Google. Saul's conversion, my conversion, your conversion, it's powered by Jesus. It's not of us. 
Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And just like Saul, our conversion to becoming a follower of Christ is unexpected and we don't deserve it. It's God-powered and it's not reliant on us. It's a free gift of God. Some of us might feel a bit unsure of our salvation, even maybe unsavable. Saul called himself the sinner of sinners. His proof that Jesus can take even the worst of us and transform us by exposure to his light. Photography pun intended. Into the most mobilized missionary like Saul. We just need to change our conviction about who Jesus is. Is that you today? Have you changed your conviction about who Jesus is? The Bible says that whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life will be saved. It's not whoever believes and does the most good stuff or prays the most prayers or it's whoever believes. For those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, the journey doesn't stop at the exposure because Jesus is not done yet with you. After conversion, you're on a mission. You're a part of Jesus' team, developed into a vibrant, you're a full color print. Just like Saul understood, we need to understand that our conversion is also our commissioning for service of the gospel. We're on the team. You see, nothing else matters in life as much as salvation. And if you've got salvation, then you better share it. See, Jesus did the change just in Saul's life, just like in my life. Jesus has promised to save all who call on his name, all who call on the name of the Lord. George Eastman, the founder of uh, Kodak, the philanthropist, Photographic pioneer, like I said before. I'm not sure where he stood with God, whether he was on Jesus' team, but I wonder whether we're as passionate about Jesus as he was about light. And I'm just going to put up this, the first slide again with the quote. But we're going to change some of the words. You'll have to imagine this. Have we embraced Jesus? Have we admired Jesus? Do we love Jesus? Do we know Jesus and know him for all it's worth? You see, Jesus is the key to life and Jesus promises life to the full. If today's been another intersection in your life, I want to encourage you to keep working out who Jesus is. Speak to the person who brought you here today. Speak to a friend Speak to Russell after. Speak to one of the elders. Perhaps today you've come to a point in your life when you've decided, yes, I've investigated the claims of Jesus and yes, he is God. I've realized who he is. The pieces of the puzzle have come together. Yes, he can save even me. Call on his name. His promises are true and he will save.